Hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism, a podcast asking the question, what does it mean to be fully alive in the 21st century? I'm your host, Brett Kane. I'm a licensed massage therapist and mindfulness meditation instructor, and this week we're going to be exploring this idea of right livelihood. In my view, uh, this whole vitality thing, the ability to feel fully alive, I think it has a lot of different variables and principles that we need to start kind of working with. And one of them is that the way you interact with the external world plays into directly how you feel about yourself, how you're perceived by the world, and ultimately the sustainability of what your practices are. So this idea of right livelihood is really bringing into question like, what are the markets that I'm engaged with? Are they directly therapeutic to the planet or am I adding to the chaos and harm that's done through like slave labor or um, just markets that deplete the resources of the world rather than rehabilitate and focus on longevity. So one of the, the views that I can navigate this through is through the art of jewelry craft, something that is really big, I mean, to all human society is jewelry, how we adorn ourselves using trinkets and talismans, and what that represents to us on a metaphysical level, an emotional level, um, but something that is fairly commonly known is that like blood diamonds are a thing. You know, uh, there's a lot of really unethical practices out there that are creating a lot of harm and a lot of really dangerous markets. So in order to help me like kind of investigate this and a little bit more about jewelry craft, I wanted to invite my really close friend Benjamin Ripley on to the show. And uh, me and Ben have been friends. Me and Ben have been, Ben and Ben and Ben. Uh, we've been friends for about six years now and I've had the pleasure of watching him grow his craft from simple wire wraps that were, you know, everything was coming together, but watching that go from like, yeah, that's cool to like absolutely jaw dropping, meticulously crafted, perfectly etched metal pieces that have stones in them that are hundreds of dollars. Watching him just transform his entire life through this practice has been really one of the great joys of being able to interact with him. So not only we do we get to talk about what I was mentioning earlier and like participating in ethical markets, but we also talk about just like the process of internal development that it takes to really be working effectively with this medium. You know, if, if you drop the ball on one aspect of your life, that's going to impact your nervous system to a degree where one wrong move and it's thousands of dollars down the drain. So really it's the cutting edge of one of the most interesting and high-risk art forms that I think is out there, you know, and it's something that I don't think a lot of people really talk about or give a lot of consideration, so it's been really cool. I've had uh, front row seats to watch him go through his ups and his downs and kind of find this beautiful plateau where he's creating this really wonderful, consistent product that is inspiring, not only for his clients that he's working with on his one-on-one -on -one custom creations, it's inspiring for him and it's inspiring for me. It's really given me a sense of like how to play the long game and how to really set my own value. Um, he's definitely one of my close brothers. I really enjoy this conversation. I really enjoyed, you know, all these years together and just finding him really, really manifest in a way that is authentic to how I've always seen him. You know, like it's really his internal and his external is really starting to line up and it's primarily through navigating the world of jewelry. <clears throat> I just ate a piece of banana bread and it is all up in my throat still, so sorry about that. 
Um, but yeah, that's what this episode is going to be talking about. We talk about maintaining a consistent um, practice with your art, what it takes, how you have to have all these other aspects of your life in order to stay on the peak of your game, which you really need to be when you're using this medium. We talk about ethical markets and kind of like the contrast from um, like custom jewelers to like say like a case or something like that like a mainstream jeweler kind of like what this whole psycho spiritual process is of creating one of these beautiful amazing intricate pieces of work that you then wear and um, yeah it's, it's a really cool talk we cover a lot of ground it's is going to be really useful if you're pursuing your own artistic endeavor as well as if you are you have no idea what jewelry craft is about or like the depth that it can actually provide. Um, this is a, just a really cool episode that helps dive into that. So I don't want to take up too much of your time in this intro. Uh, I do want to say if you want to support the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating. You can follow us over on YouTube, Instagram, the Facebook, um, any kind of channel that you're uh, receiving this show on. If you interact with it, it actually really helps us rise through the algorithms and help other dope people find the show and you know hopefully we can help as many people as possible that's why i'm doing this is so um if one episode doesn't suit you then maybe the next one will and you know there's many different keys for many different locks and i want to use this show to be you know the locksmith so to speak so yeah please if you would like to drink some tea do some stretches open your heart and help me welcome the wonderful benjamin ripley onto the show Ben Ripley, hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. How are you today? Hello, I'm doing great and thank you so much for having me. Yeah, uh, I gotta admit this is a little weird for me right off the bat because this is the first in the flesh podcast that I've done. So thanks for helping me break new grounds and step into these new waters. Absolutely. Um, let me know if my eye contact becomes too intense or weird for you. I can look in the corner. If um, you need. I mean, I'm okay with intense eye contact. Honestly, right. I usually have a video aspect for that thing, and usually I'm the one weirding the guests out. So it'd be nice to be on the other side of that <laughs> dynamic and really see what kind of space I'm creating for people. Cool. So I wanted to talk to you about jewelry. You are the resident jeweler of my life, um, and it's been a really cool journey uh, watching your specific path because you've come from like a yoga background you've done music you've done all these different things and then somehow ended up crafting metal <laughs> and i'm just kind of curious what was like the main impetus to drive you to this specific craft it's very specific yeah it, and it really is um and i ask myself that question a lot largely because i can trace back so many different aspects of my life that have led me to this it really feels like that one thing that everything's been preparing me for. Um, you know, there's a lot of building, engineering. Um, there's a lot of business, you know, figuring expenses. We're working with very precious materials, and you have to know what you're in for. And then, of course, there's a lot of very artistic sides to it. It's a lot of what I'm doing, even though I'm manipulating these metals that are very hard and you have to put a lot of force into them it's very delicate you have to be singing with your tools 
Um, there's a lot of finesse involved in that. And then the, you know, you mentioned the yoga aspect of my life, and I can't even tell you how much this ability to breathe and draw my focus and to manipulate my attention intentionally feeds into the work that I do. And it really, whenever we've like had conversations, because this is not our first talk on this, that really is something that kind of seeps through the words that you say when you're relating to your practice is my impression is that you're still doing yoga. You know, I don't know if you're like physically doing the asanas or the poses, but like the way that you negotiate and navigate the space is like through a yogic lens, which I think is like a testament both to yoga as a practice, but also the power of the metal. Yeah, yeah, and it the metal brings me into that. The stones bring me into that. They're they're these really strong reminders. I've heard you talk a lot about these bells of mindfulness, right? The materials that I work with and the tools that I work with are both of those for me. It was just last year that I first realized that metal smithing is an aspect of my practice in life. So how did, how did you, what does that feel like? Because I feel like there's a lot of people out there who don't have that kind of relationship to like any sort of practice or path. And like when you really finally settle, it's kind of the same thing with this podcast. It like, for me, it was just like something clicked. It was like the puzzle piece was in, in place. Like what did that feel like for you? Man, it, it's, it's hard to say because there are so many different moments to think back to. Um, a lot of, there's been a lot of struggle. There's been a lot of, um, just frustration leading up to it. But there was this time in which everything did click. And for me, it was a settling into the ultimate commitment. This is the purpose of my life in terms of my work. And when I realized that, everything in my life surrenders to it now. Yeah, that was actually something I had on my list here. It's going to be intentionally later in the, the, the talk, but like I think now it's a good time because it's coming up and that once you make a decision, like once you like create a path, like the rest of your life kind of has to conform to create space for it. And it like is like a really strong stabilizing force in orienting in the world. It's like how to stand upright and move forward. It's like all like through this is like a walking stick like do you kind of feel similar yeah yeah it's it's both the walking stick and it's also the um the aspect of my life that allows me to bring everything strongly to that walking stick in other words i've i've been able to get out of my own way a lot more the walking stick the craft is always there but there's so much in life right and the if you lean fully on that walking stick you could well snap it you could injure it and break it right and the relationship between you and that that walking stick or that craft is very important and so every other aspect of my life has to be held up has to be strong um there's been a lot of me wanting to just, I just want to sit at my bench. I just want to make jewelry. And the reality is, okay, I want to make jewelry. So now I got to go work two other jobs so that I can afford my life and the materials that I need to put into this. Yeah. 
it's interesting because it's like the jewelry or the art that other people might be doing. It's like the peak of the, it's like what the rest of their life is building up to do. That's like the sweet nectar at the, the end of it all, you know, and you really have to keep showing up. You can't just double everything down on that. And, you know, you've watched me kind of do that with like electronic music, you know, like really put a lot of like energy into it without having much come out. And I think it was largely because I didn't have it balanced in a in a framework that was actually sustainable or healthy I had way too many eggs in that one basket you know and having those other jobs actually really does help create space to interact with it in a way that isn't needy or like attached or you know and it's really interesting watching because you've had a few like evolutions in your craft too in that you've started like with wire and I was over here like, yeah, but you could like always keep working with wire forever. But like, you're like, no, I, I think like I need to take this next evolutionary step. So like, what, what, what's your relationship like with wire? Do you associate that in your evolutionary journey in a specific way or? Yeah. I mean, I, I can't speak enough gratitude for the relationship with wire. Um, the reality is it's an easy access point into the craft um, working with wire allowed me to start with absolutely no, like no roadblocks, no hurdles to jump over. I mean, you can get into wire wrapping, you could get the materials and the, the tools that you need to start that for like a hundred bucks. If you're ready to put time into it, you can just start. And that carried me for what three and a half four years until i started working on building my silversmithing studio do you think that there was like something in the intention of creating that silversmith studio that actually elevated like it almost seemed like the more you invested financially and like energetically it, it was just like a natural response that your the quality of your work is starting to get more refined and so like, do you think it's like that initial investment or was it just like a natural arising you know the the investment did a lot for me um you you can't know how valuable it is to invest in yourself until you have and so when i was growing in my craft with wire wrapping every little step like when i switched from copper to silver that was a big investment for me my material cost went through the roof compared to what i was spending on copper wire right and now that i consider where i'm at now silver wire is like pennies and um so each of those little incremental upgrades in how i'm choosing to invest in myself and my craft and my clients um really you know i i would think that there would be this mental pressure along with it oh now that i'm buying silver wire i really have to step up but it it wasn't like that it was like once i made that investment everything within me naturally wanted to and was allowed to it's like i gave myself the permission to show up that much more mm, i love that yeah I, I think one of the biggest things i've learned from interacting with you and watching you go down your path is like you really have to set your value and then like watch the world meet what you've set like there's like this intention that you have to set like i am worth this much my work is worth this much and then like once you really do that and you give yourself the permission to do that you it, it like evolves your mind and your work and do you, do you think i mean this is kind of an internal process for you too right mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely you know the i mean the metaphor that's that's so beautiful within goldsmithing and silversmithing 
is I'm melting down these metals and I'm casting them, I'm forging them and using the catalyst of fire to melt down these metals. And um, within my life, it's like I'm using the catalyst of this craft to melt down who I am so that I can pour it and reforge it over and over and over. And that's what's really wonderful about these precious metals is you can, there's no waste, right? You can melt down gold as many times as you want. You mess up, you melt it down. You mess up, you melt it down. You do it over and over again. The metal doesn't degrade. You don't lose anything in that process. And it's that same thing within myself is, you know, it's terrifying. After I've built up for however many years in one aspect of the work, I have this idea, I have this thought, oh man, I have to change something. I have to go for this now. I have to invest in um, all new equipment so that I can work with gold as well as silver, right? And it's like, that's terrifying. I feel like I'm going to destroy everything that I've done up until this point by melting down what I'm doing already and reformatting it. But every single time I do, I watch within myself. And again, it's not like this mental pressure or it's not like it's, it's not something that I'm telling myself to do. It's something that just naturally happens when I give myself the opportunity to be melted down and reformed. Every single time, it seems like I'm reformed with just a little bit more finesse, a little bit more attention to these details. And I guess I'm getting better and better at that process of reforming myself, right? Which allows me then to show up for the craft. So is this something that the craft itself is teaching you? Or is this something that you were kind of inspired from another aspect of life that you're kind of seeing is also true within this? Or is this something that's becoming evident as you continue this process? Is this like your main mode of transformation? Or are you bringing in other influences? There's so many other influences. Without them, I would not have have any of this uh, perspective on what's going on with the craft. Um, that that understanding that has been generated through meditation practices, yoga practices, yoga nidra has been my staple through everything. Mm -hmm. All other practices seem to have ebb and flowed for me. Yoga nidra has just been constant. Um, but yeah, all of these practices and then also different forms of education, right? I'm learning new things. Like right now I'm pursuing my builder's license for um, a company that I started with my father. We're doing building. Um, that course and that education is awesome. It's feeding into everything else that I'm doing. I've been studying uh, neurology and how the brain works in this brain chemistry for the past two years pretty intentionally and learning about neuro or um, <laughs> learning about these receptors and these neurotransmitters, how they work has started to inform that as well. And it seems like any path of education or any path of, of practice will, will inevitably feed into this. Yeah, it really does give testament to the idea that like if you learn any one thing deep enough, then you learn something about everything 
you know, and like the deeper you go, like the wider your, your breadth of understanding for like principles in the world is, you know, if you're able to kind of draw those conclusions over seemingly different uh, modalities and practices, you know, it, you're, you're still going in the same direction, you know, even if you take a little side skirt, you know, and especially if you're doing stuff like engineering that I'm sure directly, you know, it's a little less of a side skirt and more of like a supercharge of what you're already doing. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been really fascinating, especially now with like seeing the quality of work that you're doing. I feel like really this year you've really aligned your, your thought and your, your concepts with the actual physical manifestation. Whereas before, like you could see like it had legs and it was still morphing and trying to like really settle into where it's going and watching your work and your intention come into synchrony, I, I think is, it's been one of the great joys of like being your friend and like we don't hang out as much because you've been working so hard, you know? So like, how do you balance maintaining all of these other aspects of your life while still finding time? You know, is there like this, like there, there's a fine balancing act, right? Yeah, there absolutely is. You know, there's, there's the uh, temptation on either side of it, right? To overcommit time and energy to my craft or to overcommit time and energy to my wellness practices or to my um, social circles, uh, my friendships, um, you know, there's there's that temptation constantly, and it, it does. It just ebbs and flows, and there are definitely times where I find myself in a pit, so to speak, in one aspect or another. Um, but in terms of balancing it, you know, having having people around who can call me into myself right has been has been a really big help I think I have a lot of just really strong people around me who know me well enough to let me know like hey you're drifting a little bit you know that's been that's been huge and I really can't say enough about like just having strong friendships that are able to like kind of butt heads with you to help you out right and the other aspect that's just absolutely fundamental to what I'm doing right now is optimizing my time, optimizing my work. There's so many different tools that I've picked up, especially over the last year, in terms of optimizing my work and my time in every regard so that we're dropping in and we're getting right to the nectar. We're learning how to transition from one task to another faster and better. We're learning how to transition from the work into social space faster and um, what things are going to aid me in that and what things are going to hinder me in that. And that's just been that's just been huge this past year. And I think that's honestly like somewhere around 60% of the progress that you can see in my work over the last year has to do with that app optimization yeah yeah I, I really like the idea that like discipline is the only way to true freedom and i that's like the word that's kind of seems to be coming through the clouds of what you're saying is that like you have to really be like mindful of the things that are taking and you're spending your energy on as well as the things that are like giving you the energy which requires a certain level of consistent mindfulness being applied to your daily practices so this already is kind of there's the prerequisite of like having the uh, priority of cultivating presence and awareness and then bringing that to your craft so that's like one aspect of it but it's also like 
not doing the things that you know are bad for you, you know, and like that, that's a really hard one in this day and age, because I feel like a lot of people, it's just really easy to kind of slide into that, especially with like the phones and stuff, you know, so yeah, I think like the level of awareness that it takes to do what you're doing is, is pretty incredible, you know, to really sit down and like do the work consistently, and to still like allow yourself the the freedom to kind of like sometimes we all fall into pits, you know, and like, yeah, I think the idea of having a strong social container is huge with that. It's like the mindfulness, the social container and the receptivity, you know, right, it's like right. it takes courage. You right. know, It takes courage to be that open to yourself. So. Yeah. And and something that's been been really on my mind recently is like, what do you do when you're in a pit? You know, like, what do you do? And that like how you respond to that is so important right because you are going to spend your entire life in and out of these pits there's everything in the world is asking for your attention and you like there might be one person alive on the planet today who actually directs their t attention to where they want to <laughs> right <laughs> the rest of us are are getting pulled a lot <laughs> and um it's gonna happen right so like what do you do how do you respond to that are you in a pattern of shaming yourself when you're in a pit? Are you in a pattern of overcompensating when you're in a pit? And how does that work within your process of getting out of that pit? It's almost like it's not if you'll fall into, into the pit, but it's like how you'll relate to the pit when you're in it. And like, do you want to listen to what the pit is telling you? Because these pits, they're, it's a feedback mechanism. It's not inherently like evil or bad or we shouldn't try to avoid the pit. We should like listen to what it's saying because it's pointing out the parts of us that like aren't in balance. It's kind of like burnout, you know, which is a part of pursuing an artistic expression is like sometimes you can pursue it way too hard. Like you said, the stick will break and it's like what, what, what is communicating to you? but we have so much resistance because so much of our personality is infused with the art that we're doing often because we don't have the proper awareness to hold the, what it is. We don't have a container for it. So yeah, how, how would you say, how do people relate to the pit in a more healthy way? Yeah, um, it's, it's really in that response. You know, I think about my high school choir director. She always said, when you make a, a mistake, you're going to make a mistake, right? So. When you make a mistake, it's not about what mistake you made. It's about what do you do when the mistake is made. And so that's, that's the first place to direct your mindfulness, right? It's not about fixing the pit. It's not about getting out of the pit. It's about paying attention to yourself because that's, that's the key ingredient. You can get out of anything. You are beyond powerful. You have the capacity to do anything you set your mind to. So what's holding you up is how you're responding, your process within that. If you can direct your attention away from these external things, oh, I'm, I'm in this pit because my phone always rings. No, you're not. Yeah. You have the capacity to make changes to yourself or you know, turn your phone on, do not disturb at certain times or whatever. And so when you can direct away from the excuse, away from the blame, Right? It doesn't do any good for me to like, sit here and blame myself and beat myself up over anything. I do have to recognize my mistake. That's critical. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely critical. I can't suppress it. Right. And even within the neuroscience around uh, plasticity and learning, right? 
In order to achieve plasticity, you have to recognize the mistake. Plasticity is triggered by, by um, well, I'll tell you the exact neurotransmitters, right? It's norepinephrine and it's acetylcholine. And these are associated with high levels of attention and focus and stress and anxiety and fear. That is what triggers your brain to make a note and say, hey, I have to learn something here. Mm -hmm. If you're glancing over your mistakes and you're saying, oh, well, that wasn't my fault. That was somebody else's fault. Or um, just laughing it off. Oh, ha, 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 you know, whatever. It'll be fine, right? I'm not saying, like, beat yourself up because that's not productive. However, when you recognize that mistake... And you, in, you internalize that. You take the second to say, this is what I did wrong. You will have a release of norepinephrine and acetylcholine that will feel anxiety, fear. You'll be heightened in your attention. And at that point, that's when you can put in reps in a new direction. Mm, okay. And then you will naturally experience learning towards your goal. It's interesting because it's like it requires you to be on the cutting edge of that and to be really aware. And it's almost like from my own experience, the 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 part of you that starts to act differently happens naturally. It's like there is the choice to be cognizant of the thing and allow that to bubble up and feel the emotions and to learn from it. But going forward, it's not like you have to like choose differently. It just naturally happens. I know. Do you kind of feel like that's absolutely, absolutely, and. You know, I should, I should give credit to what I'm speaking on right now. This all comes from uh, the Huberman Labs podcast, Dr. Andrew Huberman. He's a neurologist and an ophthalmologist at Stanford Medical. And he's, he's doing a lovely podcast. Definitely check it out. It's on YouTube. It's on Instagram. Um, just these learnings about neurochemistry and how to work within your system. But... So you mentioned the change, the actual learning, right? The learning does not take place at that moment of recognizing the mistake. Mm -hmm. So this goes for how you relate with yourself and others, right? If you see somebody make a mistake and you try to correct them and you expect them to immediately learn and adapt, then you're not, your expectation is not aligned with what the science says about how learning actually takes place. The learning... See, the, when you recognize your error, it makes a mental picture, right? And then the learning takes place later when you're in a state of deep rest or deep sleep. Mm-hmm. So this could be yoga nidra, um, this could be meditation, or this could simply be sleep. Yeah, yeah. so I, I think I've heard it associated with like the theta brainwave state which is kind of like right before like the deep sleep area. There's kind of this like integration period where like the information of the day starts to kind of settle into and create grooves within the brain and patterns and and like the plasticity aspect. And I think like a big part about doing any sort of change or development on a path is we have to be able to get like the struggle out of it. We have to perspire. We have to sweat towards it. But like the unnecessary suffering that comes along from like lambasting ourselves when we don't reach our 
idealized potential, I think really also creates other neurological trajectories that can actually keep you distracted from making the growth. You know, you're like, you're way too reliant on the external situation and less on like the contentment of being where you are now. It takes like being truly present and genuinely gentle with yourself. And like, that is the way forward. But it's hard when you don't have any sort of skill set to like hang your hat on to like generate that kind of feeling unconditionally you know it takes specific focused work on it you know and I, I think art if you really stick with an artistic process I think that it does help kind of foster that that procedure along you know because you have something kind of to focus on it's an internal thing externally you know like when you're doing an art you're working with your mind first and foremost you know to like maintain the level of dedicated discipline it's it's really it's a mental like you said, like a rep, you know? So it's really cool to see it being applied to so many different like aspects of human artistic expression, you know? And even in something like jewelry, something that honestly a lot of people don't really think about. I really don't like coming to a lot of conversations where people are trying to investigate the subtle energies that it goes into creating jewelry, you know? And it's cool because it's in like every aspect of our society you know if you really apply yourself you can apply yourself the same way that you apply yourself to jewelry as you do to coffee making or to cooking a good meal you know and it all feeds itself and with the right mindset you can create that gentleness and it, everything's a little bit more gentle you know right yeah and the question i would ask is what is it that you want to be learning right you know and what you do in the moments after recognizing a mistake is what you will be learning. Mm. So like you said, if you're beating yourself up at that point, you're going to learn to beat yourself up. You'll probably externalize that towards others as well. If you're learning to be gentle with yourself and to make corrections in a, in a way that's generally helpful and productive, you're going to learn how to make those corrections in a way that's generally helpful and productive. And that, I mean, that shows in what you do so strongly, right? The, each little graver cut that I make, right, when I'm engraving a piece, that has to do with every aspect of my entire nervous system. And if I'm struggling to make those cuts, like in the past, I've struggled a lot to learn. I, I have been very harsh on myself and others. And if I'm struggling to make those cuts, you're going to see that very clearly in the work. Yeah. It's, it's like the artistic artifact using your old brand's name is like it's a manifestation of who you were in that time that you were creating it. Every hope, every fear is etched deep into that metal, into that work every song that you hear it's it's like the emotional resonance of that being making that thing and you know like art really is it's almost it's secondary to the primary cultivation of your own nervous system your own processes and if you're not mindful of it then the art you put out won't be mindful and people don't resonate with unmindful art <laughs> they really don't you know that's what makes art kind of intangible you know there's something about good art that is like it transcends like this appeases my senses like I'm having an experience with this, you know, and I, I think that jewelry really does have that opportunity, you know, with in, if it's infused with the level of concentration that's possible, you know, and some of the stuff you show me, it's like 
those people are they're they're gurus they're masters they're like there's they're operating on different levels you know and it's powerful so what do you think is the role of jewelry specifically in the psycho spiritual dimension of being a human like as someone who comes to you and is like ben i want a piece you know i have this idea what what is what is jewelry allowing us to do man jewelry is such a powerful symbol or or let me say it this way jewelry is a medium for harnessing symbols in an incredibly powerful way we are working with silver gold diamonds sapphires these materials have been some of the most sought after physical objects for humans throughout time and we're taking these materials and we are manipulating them into our visions we are working with them to take a symbol that we have in our mind and to immortalize it right a well-cared for piece of jewelry would last throughout the ages and so we're immortalizing symbols into a physical thing that you can then keep with you at all times this reminder for example the ring that i wear i very rarely take it off unless i'm sleeping or like washing myself right i almost always have it on and you can talk to the metaphysical properties right of these metals and these stones i personally don't like to converse as much about those all i'll say about that is that they are vibrating in specific frequencies they are vibrating in certain ways and you will feel and experience those vibrations now what those vibrations mean i think that's very personal mm-hmm. right like you're going to vibrate very differently around somebody else as you would vibrate around me right and i would imagine that these stones and these metals are are doing the same thing so i don't want to tell you what a sapphire is going to do for you i want you to experience that that's a healthy approach to take especially being as close to these stones as you are so i feel like there's a lot of people who will kind of prescribe you stones and like tell you like okay so this is what's going on with your aura and then here's this like magic pill if you just keep it in your pocket and it kind of takes like the you out of it and like the the relationship the spontaneous connection that you feel with these objects and i really think that that relationship that you build with your talisman if you will is like that is the the primary thing and you have to like really go on that journey yourself you know, yeah. so how do you work with clients in a way where you don't offload your own uh, interpretations and like allow them the most creative capacity while using you as the means to achieve it? You know, right? And that's such a that's such a delicate thing, man. Because the reality is, I am only able to stretch so far outside of what I do. And I love working with people because that's how I get that exercise. Somebody comes to me with a design or an idea and we work together. We bounce the idea back and forth and that stretches me outside of, of what I do, right? But I can only stretch so far at any given time. And so I need people to recognize where I'm at, to recognize the sort of the, the portfolio of what I'm doing at this point 
I mean, if somebody came up to me today and said, hey, man, can you make me a, a wire wrap with this? I, I'd probably just say no, because that's not where I'm at right now. Yeah. And um, there are a lot of people who are very intimate with that process. And I just direct people to these people because that's what they're intimate with, right? So it has to be a delicate balance between what the client is looking for and where I'm at within my own vision. And so we bounce ideas back and forth, and it's just this really beautiful marrying of um, symbols and concepts. And together we create something more beautiful than either one of us could have ever thought of. Wow. And it's cool because you're also opening up to the greater field of the phenomenal world and that like the stones you're choosing, each of these stones has a story and a, a place that's been resting for thousands of years. And the forces that are all coming together to produce one piece, especially when you work with a client, it, you can't even like, I don't know if you take full credit or responsibility for the construction of that because it almost seems like it's there's so many converging forces that are creating this piece and like it is your hand that's doing every one of the etchings but do you kind of feel like the, the jewelry kind of exists and you're like uncovering it from like the fabric of reality <laughs> is it or like do you how much of you is in each of these pieces how much of your client is in this piece do you do you draw a distinction or it's just one massive unfolding you know it, it depends on which which process we're looking at because some people do come to me and they just say, Hey, do something you want to do. Right. And, um, they still are supporting and creating the opportunity for that to unfold. So they are very intimate with that. And then what I create is based on how I see them seeing the process. Right. Um, it's never when I'm building for a client, it's never just my, inspiration right but the same could be said when i'm building for my own line and you mentioned the story of the stone and that's something that's so important to me as a jeweler this industry hasn't really been very ethical let's just call it what it is blood diamonds are a thing right and a lot of people have made a lot of money supporting regional strife in these mining communities supporting slavery child labor, a lot of people have made a lot of money supporting these things. And, you know, it's something that really came to my attention in the coffee industry, working with directly traded coffees, hearing the stories about the specific farmers and their lives as they're farming these beans, and then working in relationship with the uh, roasters and importers and how much their lives have grown richer, right? Not just in the fact that they're getting paid more, they are, but in the fact that they're seeing this connection from their farm to this extraordinary cup of coffee being brewed all day at a sweet cafe, right? And like that's something that I think the farmers could have never dreamed of, but we could have never dreamed of it without the farmers. And so I take that same approach with sourcing gemstones. Over this last year, I made a firm commitment that I will only be purchasing gemstones that are highly transparent in terms of where they come from, either completely fair traded or given a strong guarantee that they have not supported regional strife or any slave labor. This comes through 
companies that have robust fair trade pro protocols and work directly with miners. Sometimes they don't know the exact information of the mine because it's a um, cooperative co-op that they're working with. But simply the the guarantee that these stones have been paid for properly, right? These miners are being taken care of and that they're not supporting any regional strife. Most of them are being cut in the U.S. for the stones that I'm purchasing right now. And the ones that aren't, we know exactly where they're being cut. We know who's cutting them. And so we take any guessing out of it. You can have the absolute assurance that this stone is completely ethical in its sourcing and its cutting. I think that that really does play into the feeling of quality when you're admiring like your work. Anybody who works in an ethical fashion or has that kind of oversight. And when you compare it to work that you can find at like a K Jewelers, not to throw them under the bus, I don't know how they are, but... Go ahead, throw them. I'm throwing them. <laughs> Um, you know, but like these like mass produced pieces that don't really have any heart, they don't have any ethics behind them. I mean, this might sound a little woo, but I think you can feel like a vibrational difference. Like it, it's so much easier to form like a genuine relationship with a piece of work when you know that it's not infused with the pain and suffering of people who are getting abused, you know, and I, I'd love to see more things kind of pick up that mantle and I'm really glad to hear that that's something that you're incorporating. Um, is that kind of like a common theme in kind of the higher class jeweler world? Yeah, within within handcraft jewelry, you get people who are very intimate with their process at every level. So how do you, when like making a sale with something like this, like it, it almost, I'm trying to think of how I really want to word this. I feel like someone it's sometimes hard to get a lot of money together to like, how do we, cause like I do see the importance of it as like a milestone. It's kind of like a rite of initiation to be adorned with something of this nature. Like, have you felt that sense of kind of, have you ever had to like explain to people or do you typically get people that come to you who are like, I completely understand why this is the way it is and I want to engage with this? Or do you kind of feel like there's like a stumbling block with like the general populace? Like, why the heck is this this much <laughs> or this, that? Like, how do you navigate the market of this craft? You know, that's something that has very much evolved with my process as well. When I was making wire wrap jewelry and walking around the parking lots at music festivals selling them. I remember the days. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody tried hustling me. Yeah everybody yeah and i got hustled yeah. let's say it um i i have certainly been hustled i've been stolen from and that happened when i was presenting myself in a certain way mm -hmm. and that was based on how i saw myself and the value that i saw in the craft right and at that time i wasn't sourcing fair trade gemstones i was buying bulk from some random dealers in india and they were coming to me very, very cheap. Yeah. And the quality sucked, yeah. you know, to be totally honest. Um, but what has happened, now that I've become more intimate with my process, I understand all of the different aspects of what's going into it. I've seen that my pricing is 
purely fair. Yeah. There's, there's no, there's no gouging. I've, you know, years ago, I thought to myself, wow, a piece of jewelry costing 200 bucks, that's crazy. How could I even justify that? And at this point, um, I mean, my custom process starts at 750. And the reality is when I can express very clearly what we're doing, people don't necessarily know what price range it's going to be. But when we get to that point of talking about price, people understand. Mm -hmm. And that's very different than when I was just kind of all over the place trying to pull things together. Um, You know, back then I was running a hustle. And now I'm working to protect myself and my craft and my studio, right? My tools are very expensive. The materials, especially since taking the plunge into fair trade, exclusively fairly traded gemstones, my materials are a lot more expensive now. And that's something that we're doing for everybody. Well, I think it it really does kind of come down to like you set your value. You know, you started to respect yourself, respect the intimacy of the process. And I think that like when you engage with someone such as yourself, that you're, you're paying for that that confidence and that ethicality of it, you know, and I think the people, it's not going to be a problem to the people who are ready to take that investment into themselves, which is really what the process is. You know, when you are adorning yourself with a magnificent piece like this, you're choosing to value yourself differently. You know, it's an opportunity to have this right of initiation to say like, I am worth it and I am powerful. And it was through my, my doing my support that this experience happened and it really like both of you are enriched as well as I mean all the people in the trade line as well you know and yeah I I wasn't trying to like say that to be like what the heck man where's the discounts (laughs) (laughs) no but just like to just explore for like the people out there who aren't familiar with handcraft jewelry you know I don't know how much a wedding ring costs these days on like the typical market do you do you know like a rough, rough approximation you know average price for a wedding ring is five to six thousand dollars. Wow, I actually had no idea. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's that's from, you know, Jared's. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that mine would be, would not be competitive with that. Yeah. Um, what I will say is that I run a more honest operation than Jared's does. Yeah. Right. My stuff's not getting built in a factory, right. and I'm not charging you, hand and foot for my labor. You know, every every aspect of the pricing comes from making sure that my studio can continue forward, right? right? right. And I have, I have a lot of clients who work with me over a long period of time, right? Idea, from the point of an idea to a created piece could be a year or two. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that makes it easier for the client, right, in terms of hey, you only have to pay like a hundred bucks a month and we can get you like a really sweet piece of jewelry. Um, And the other side of that is that then we're engaged in this process, right? Like we're intimately engaged then for a year. And that puts a richness into the piece that really comes through on both ends. You know, I, I see each of those payments post and... I experience gratitude, 
And as I'm working through the process, these longer term projects, you know, we kind of put things together over time. So it's like, okay, we're going to start here. And then there's going to be a time where um, we acquire this stone. Okay, now we've got this stone. There's going to be a time where we acquire the metal. Now we've got the metal. There's going to be a time where all of the pieces are here and we actually make the design, right? And then we're going to set on into actually building this thing, right? That's the very end of these longer term processes. But the buildup to that and the consistent strides of investing in yourself and in this beautiful piece of art, I mean, the process is really where it's at, man. Like the fruit is not nearly as exciting yeah. as the process. Yeah, I love that. It's really what you're, you're providing people the opportunity to express a sense of agency and creative vision within themselves because like you're, you're giving them the space to kind of help dictate the direction, which a lot of people don't have such an immediate sense in their lives, you know? So giving them the, the sense of like agency and then the, the right of initiation when they get the fruit of the piece, it, it, it really is kind of like an echo of the, the process that they just went through of investigating how do they want to relate with this experience, you know? So like while they do have a beautiful piece, you know, like the real gold that was being refined was actually the gold that they were dredging up from within themselves, you know? And right. Something else that came up with the idea of, um, you know, we, we, we do place a lot of, uh, a lot of weight into like wedding rings as a, a symbol of this eternal, it's like a sacred thing. You know, when you get on your knee and you present this thing and for most people, they don't have any, any qualm with that that's just what you do and we don't like really explore the symbology of that and, like what we're really doing and on like one level it's totally abstract and mystical and but we only really confine that behavior to wedding rings you know but what i really like about this process that you're talking about is we're expanding that same behavior to marrying parts of themselves creating commitments and long-term dedications to things that they want to cultivate and then they wear you know as they wear one of these necklaces they're able to like i made a commitment to myself of my value of my worth of whatever they want to imbue in it and that is just such a powerful opportunity and it, i just it's my mind is constantly expanding on the <laughs> idea of jewelry the more that i see you commit to it and it really is an incredible part of the path, you know? It it really is an important thing, the way you adorn yourself and the way you take care of your physical image with, you know, these excess things. It's it's insane. Yeah. yeah. This process is out of this world, man. <laughs> it's cool. How did you kind of come to the conclusion that this is kind of how this would unfold? Was it always so involved and intimate? Did you have kind of a sense from your yogic background that there were some deeper underlying systems at play? Or is this just something, you know, kind of like a Satori moment where it was like, oh, I got to like treat this really, really importantly. Like, how did you develop this space? Yeah, man, it, it really did come out of this spaciousness that was cultivated through yoga and meditation you know when i when i first started wire wrapping um not the first piece that i ever made but when i first started wire wrapping and that process never stopped right 
Um, I was out on a car camping trip in Colorado and I had been doing yoga nidra. I had been meditating and uh, my partner and I at the time, we decided to take five months and get lost in the Rockies. And at that time I was reading um, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras and I was taking a practice which uh, was still rather new to me. And I was creating kind of my own practice up in the mountains, experimenting with it, playing with pranayama, playing with um, these different asanas, and playing with the manipulation of energy in order to create an experience, right? And um, I mean, I was in the most spacious place I've probably ever been in the Rocky Mountains. And that was when I started wire wrapping every day. And so just naturally, I was sitting here thinking, Atta yoga nushasanam, making a weave, yoga vritti nirodaha. And the, these, these elements of the Yoga Sutras and what they're teaching, and these elements of my own developing practice and what it was teaching me was infused into that work from the very beginning. And it's not that I thought that the work was important at that time. The reality is I really liked to pick up rocks when I'd go on walks. So I had a lot of them. And so I got some <laughs> yeah. copper wire yeah. to make pendants for gifts for my friends. Yeah. Like I, I wasn't sitting here thinking like, wow, it's so important, right? But, but what was happening was I was seeing these symbols. I was seeing the importance through noticing that each little piece that I would make had its own very unique story and based on how the design came together and based on where I started and what ideas I had it would unfold and create this narrative and then I ended up giving a lot of them away right and so I'd, I'd find these people and I'd be like hey I made this and I think you should have it and I'd tell them that story they'd cry yeah. it would just land and they'd be like dude that is literally the story that's been following me for this last like six months and i think you just broke me out of a cycle and so it wasn't that i thought it was important when i started making it but it was when i started interacting with the people who were receiving it that i realized that this stuff has extraordinary power and there is a sense of um, responsibility for me when i'm crafting that I am engaged in something that's going to be very impactful and powerful for people. So what's the story of this one that I'm wearing right here? Oh man, that's, that's <laughs> a wild piece, man. That, um, so that's like this purple labradorite, right? That, um, Michaela Cravaco gifted me. Um, and that piece was my first, time because that was such a beautiful stone right i got that stone so and good. i was like man this stone is insane it's a big piece of labradorite it has gorgeous purple color i was blown away by the stone itself and so i decided at that point like wow i'm gonna put everything that i can into this piece and if you would have seen what i was making at the same time as when i made that which which you did, I did right? yeah, right? yeah we were living together <laughs> yeah so you so you can you can uh, totally identify with this story but 
that piece took my craft and just elevated it beyond anything I had even thought to make before. Mm -hmm. It was pure flow. And the only thing that was different was the sense of respect that I had for the stone and the desire to um, invest myself as fully into the making of that piece as I was invested in just how beautiful and powerful and potent I felt that this stone was. I remember those moments. There's quite a few of those when we were living together where you'd be making a few pieces like, yeah, those are cool, dude. I really like what you did here and there. And then just like, boom, and this like <laughs> massive piece. It was just like jaw dropping. There are many of them that I think you still have the, uh, uh, what's it? Amarita? Amarita. Amarita. Yeah. I am so surprised that that's still available. I'm like, that is a powerful piece. Like, You know, there's a part of me that, that kind of doesn't want to let these pieces go at times you know what I mean it's hard to let go of those and that that piece and the one that I made just after it Anandamaya mm -hmm. um, those two pieces are the pinnacle of the wire work that I've done yeah I, I would agree I yeah would agree. and so for me to actually like work to move them or to like get to a point where I'm ready to let them go I want more than anything I want those to go to the right person, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and so I I don't want to like sell them. I don't want to like market them and push them, yeah. right? Yeah. I want I want some sort of like very because they're just they're just really special to me, and they always will be, mm -hmm. right? I may never go back to wire wrapping. Yeah. Is there's a potential that I would that I would do another wire wrap, but I may never do it again. And so those could very well exist as the pinnacle of my work as a wire wrap artist. It has to be pretty interesting when you develop such a deep relationship with a piece and then you see someone else wearing it. You know, that has to feel so freaking cool, but also maybe maybe a little sad, you know, because like <laughs> your story is infused in these, you know, your time, your energy, your presence, your being, it's like captured in the essence of the piece whether or not they're aware of where you were at then for you you know you're walking around and all these people are wearing your pieces i'm sure that there's probably like a little bit of oh i remember that heartbreak <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah yeah man it's it's so cool when a piece walks back to me right like it's it's so so cool and um i mean that just happened today as as we met and you were wearing this piece um I was like, wow, I haven't seen that in a while. Yeah. Hello, how are you yeah. doing? Yeah. What's been going on in your life, right? And every time these pieces come back to me, it's kind of like I forgot about them, even though, you know, I, I haven't totally forgotten about them, right? Like every piece that has walked back to me, I've recognized, I've remembered the process of creating it, right? But um, it's like I'm seeing it in a whole new light. Right. And... It's it's just so fun getting reacquainted time and time again, right? Yeah. It never gets old. It's like old friends. Like, do you want to like go out get some food or something? Right. <laughs> but it's cool because like the pieces never really left you though, right? Like, I'm sure there's a sensation where you're working on a new piece and it's like this piece that's around my neck is there too. You know, it's like every completed project is informing the way that you're moving through this and like micro decisions that you're making micro movements it's muscle memory that was developed through cultivating a relationship with all the prior pieces you know so in that way like these things still have lives within you and they have their own external lives like it's like spreading the idea of what that piece is you know 
It's just like absolutely a really trippy idea. Yeah, man. The brain never forgets. Right, right? right. Even even if you can't call something to your conscious memory, it is there. Mm-hmm. And and the brain being a map of your external experience, it's still there. Yeah. You know? And and that's that's what I mean when I say it's not like it's the the process that's so so sweet. Right? The the piece itself, like you can look at it and say, oh, wow, that's beautiful. Oh, you did this and that. That's really cool. And these stones and the metal. Um, but the, the one thing that I cannot give to you is my process of creating it. Yeah. And so this really is why I come back to it over and over again. I love the materials. I absolutely adore them. And I love the clients that I work with. I love how impactful my work has been on people's lives. Like, that's humbling as fuck. Yeah. Am I allowed to say that on this yeah. podcast? Yeah, okay. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> that's humbling yeah. as fuck. And it breaks me down over and over again. And, and it, like, that's amazing. But the reality is it's this whole process of, of asking the stones how they want to be set asking the clients how they want to see the stone set, what symbols they want incorporated, and then figuring out how am I going to bring all of this together and then taking each little cut with my saw blade, taking each little solder joint, you know, that experience as frustrating as it can be when it's not going well. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. That experience is is why I keep coming back. Yeah. And I'm sure the there is like a level of intensity you kind of have to go through. There's like a gate of fire where it's like, yo, one slip up in this thousand dollar piece, done, you know. So like, there's also that kind of like standing on like the cutting edge of like, you know, the ability versus like everything falling apart. You know, is yeah. there's really not much like it. You know, like compared to like maybe like rock climbing, like that ultimate screw up is like death. But, you know, but like with this, like the ultimate screw up is like thousands of dollars. The relationship, the space that you've meticulously cultivated with your clients, with these stones, which have been in the earth for thousands of years. It's it, it's a lot of pressure, you know, it's the same pressure that made the stones is still present. <laughs> you know, it hasn't <laughs> gone out anywhere. It's and it demands that respect, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it really seems as if there's like a teacher yeah you know yeah it requires a a lot of stretching from you i'm sure to be able to really show up and you know it's as ancient as the earth you know and it's we're all kind of being asked to show up to that same cutting edge in our own ways our own unique ways whether it's to make the perfect burger at burger king or you know there's definitely always that that potential for that space to be made where you know, everything's like a rite of initiation if you want it to be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it really, you know, it's, it's not so much about what you're doing, right? And all of the atmospheres and environments will shift and change, but it's really how you show up that makes it rich or not. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like that's a natural, that's a natural spot to bookend this. Thank you so much for joining me in uh, the HQ. <laughs> it's my living quarters. Spoiler. <laughs> yeah, uh, this has been great, man. Where can people find you? Um, you can go to my website or my Instagram or Facebook. Everything's the same tag. It's Benjamin Ripley Jewelry. 
So BenjaminRipleyJewelry.com, Benjamin Ripley Jewelry on Instagram, Benjamin Ripley Jewelry on Facebook. It's all right there. Cool. And you're probably available to meet with clients and the such if someone's wanting to begin this magical process with you? Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, the process starts with a conversation, right? And um, I'm always available either to connect digitally or to plan something and meet up in person. Cool. Awesome. Well, Ben, this probably won't be the last time. So thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you, Brett. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. So glad we got to sit down and talk. For sure. Right on. See ya. All right, my friends, that was the episode. Thank you so much for listening all the way through till the end. You are the real MVP of the show. If you want to stay in touch with Ben's platform, head on over to BenjaminRipleyJewelry.com. That link will be down below. Uh, it's the same handle for all the social media. Uh, he's definitely probably the most active on Instagram. So if you want to stay up to date with his current projects and what he's got in the works, definitely encourage you to check it out. He's honestly, his platform is like a nexus for all things jewelry. It's really cool. Uh, it is constant inspiration for me so yeah once again thank you so much this has been another one of these lovely talks i really like sitting down with my friends and um you know sharing my platform you know that's definitely an important aspect of this for me so thank you again for 30 episodes y'all we are peaking that middle double digit uh world you know we're almost we're getting a 50 that's crazy wow what is happening right now Anywho, yeah, be well, have a great week, and we'll see you next week, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Bye.